Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Welcome to Recode Media. Peter Kafka, that is me, and I'm having a busy week because there's a lot of news, as you probably know. And if you don't, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast, but Elon Musk, the world's richest man, says he's going to buy Twitter for $44 billion, and barring some Elon Musk-like move, that's going to happen in the next few months. And also... Netflix appears to have hit a brick wall. It's losing subscribers instead of gaining them. That's going to keep happening. Um, things are looking so grim there that Netflix has gone ahead and said they're going to start adding advertising, or at least an ad-based tier, to their service. Something they said they would never, ever, ever do. Don't ever say never, ever. To talk about all this and to create a bonus pod, I brought in Charlie Warzel from The Atlantic excellent writer, big thinker, to talk about Elon Musk and Twitter and what it all means. And of course, I brought in Lucas Shaw. Is he my favorite media writer? He's way up there. Lucas is the best to talk about Netflix. Okay, fun podcast. Two brainy guys talking to me. Here's me and Charlie Warzel. I'm here with Charlie Warzel, who's worked at many places and currently works at The Atlantic, where he writes awesome stories and puts out a great newsletter called Galaxy Brain. Welcome, Charlie. Thank you for having me. I'm having you on because I like to talk to you and also because you wrote one of the smarter pieces about Elon Musk and Twitter that came out in the last day or so. Because you said, look, we're all just guessing. We don't actually know what's going to happen. Um, no one knows what's going to happen with Elon Musk and Twitter. Pretty likely that Elon Musk doesn't know what he's going to do with Twitter. Seems like maybe there's a master plan. But given what we know about Elon Musk and also the speed of this deal, it's Seems like he kind of did it on a whim. But you walked us through three sort of basic scenarios you imagined might happen. I think that's a good starting point for this conversation. So let's just let's jump into it. Uh, the first is is the the scariest one, at least for people on my Twitter uh, version of Twitter. It's called the darkest timeline. What's the darkest timeline version of Elon Musk Twitter? So the darkest timeline is basically where I think Elon Musk is highly, highly interested in making massive changes to Twitter and that those changes are sort of ex like extremely politically motivated and, uh, you know, and, and kind of like vengeful, right? So, I want to turn this into Donald Trump's dream social network. Yeah. And, and that there's sort of like, uh, like a, he's <laughs> kind of like Elon Musk as the social media joker, right? Like he's just like, what I want is I want chaos and I want chaos because angers people who you know i find annoying namely like social justice oriented liberals and so you know that idea is like yes it's a reinstatement of you know maybe donald trump but it's also just like you can you could one could imagine a sort of 
a broad blanket sort of uh, pardon of a lot of accounts, right? Like you could say, you know what? I think that Alex Jones is a great performer mm-hmm. and I, you know, welcome back real Alex Jones um, and people like that. And that there's this sort of very real, like flooding the zone with an extreme excess of shit, like just a whole bunch of sort of, of, of really um, bad accounts. But then you can also imagine in the, in the, you know, the nightmare scenario too, that, that, you know, he's, he's using that there's sort of this, like, it's motivated by, you know, a, a glee at making a lot of people uncomfortable. And it really has nothing to do with the, the health of the platform, but it's more kind of just this, um, nihilistic kind of trolling shit posting as management. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and I think that, um, you know, I, I think there are also ways in which in the in the nightmare scenario, you could, you know, say that he he uses this power really nakedly to manipulate financial markets, right? Like it's sort of I have my finger, you know, on the dials here and make no bones about it. You know, I own this thing and like, let's get, you know, X stock or whatever. And, and it's yes. just, you know, this kind of again jokerification of him um, i've already think- shown that i could make stocks go up to infinity just simply by tweeting about them once and 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 people are get confused about what i'm tweeting about uh and and shoot those stocks up so let's really go to town and do all of that yeah and and to be fair like i think that this is 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 a pretty unlikely um scenario that mm-hmm. it, it that there's this sort of like I think there's a possibility that the zone gets kind of flooded with shit again and, you know, certain accounts get reinstated and, you know, certain things like trust and safety get paired back um, a little bit. But I also don't see that there being like this extremely overt, like I want to become a super villain type person. I just don't really see that as as the main motivation. So so it leads us to weird, chaotic timeline, which is sounds much more Muskian. Yeah, so that that's the one in which he is, he continues to be invested in doing stuff to Twitter, and it's a real kind of um, he treats Twitter like like a laboratory, right? A laboratory for not only just issues around speech and content moderation, but a laboratory for you know like what does a decentralized Twitter look like, right? What does Twitter fully on the blockchain look like? And and this is you know you can I can imagine him i mean i think this might start with you know he's famously said he wants an edit button right so it starts with something like an edit button but you know the way that i think previous versions of twitter and a lot of these platforms are run is even though they do have a lot of unintended consequences at least nowadays you know twitter especially kind of like rolls out trial features and tests them in small groups of the population and then if it works releases them spends wide. a lot of time thinking about what will this mean right and that's just very unmuskian which is ripping yeah Let's and i could imagine i could imagine in this timeline that musk decides nope you're getting an edit button tomorrow everyone's getting it and let's see what happens and doing that mm-hmm. with all kinds of features and i can imagine this starts with as you know as we got used to during the Trump administration, or maybe we didn't get used to it, but as we noticed during the Trump administration, lots of like late night musing tweets, right? Lots of trial balloons saying, hey, what about this? Which not only sends the media into its own kind of frenzy to understand what it means, but also usually internally. So you could imagine a lot of product managers and people at Twitter like, oh, we're we're building that? Um, mm-hmm. oh, oh, okay. And a lot of sort of, you know, maybe half-baked 
rollouts yep. of products that aren't ready and that's sort of that that version of 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 the timeline you can make an argument for that timeline simply by one reading elon musk's previous tweets and also watching what he's done in his life where he has started and created and 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 really f- made some and, and some very important companies that have really flourished and he also just fucks around both corporately right i'm going to start a flamethrower company i'm going to start a tunneling company called boring co um, which maybe is a company and maybe isn't and I'm going to sell flamethrowers because that seems fun. I'm also going to name my kids um, literally impossible to pronounce names because why not do that? So you could see him treating Twitter the the same way. Exactly. I, I think that that, that, you know, that's probably the most exhausting outcome for a lot of people involved, including the press, including, you know, I, again, internally at Twitter. You can imagine a lot of stops and starts and reboots. Um, and also, I think, you know, there's, not to you know gloss over it that it could have very bad consequences for speech right and and i think also that timeline involves a lot of um sort of him bumbling into things that that you know he thinks are pretty straightforward and they're not like his his plan to authenticate all humans on twitter you know if you look at facebook's policy around everyone using their real names that has just you know a ton of uh, creates a ton of problems and confusion and 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 you know, true difficulties for for people. And then, you know, there's also the issue of, I think he wants to open source Twitter's algorithm and let everyone in and see, but he also wants to get rid of spam. And, you know, opaque algorithms are blocked because spammers game them. So there's like these conflicting, you know, things that he's trying to get at. I imagine the weird chaotic timeline is a version of him very publicly confronting these things. And, you know, abandoning them in various states of disarray. This is a good time to point out that his approach to Twitter seems like one that a lot of us realize, which is I spend a lot of time on Twitter tweeting or reading tweets. I think about it a lot, way more than I probably should. And I have real ideas about how it should be made better or worse, which maybe are not necessarily bad ideas, but that's much different than running Twitter and confronting the various um, checks and balances you have. You've got a great quote here from a former Twitter employee describing his the way he approaches it as, quote, highly solipistic things that are only about his experience with the product as a user with 80 million followers and a consent decree with the SEC. So that's a very specific uh, uh, Twitter experience, but we all have that. I wish Twitter did this. I wish Twitter did that. And it's easy to say when you're just on Twitter tweeting and conceivably harder to do when you run it. On the other hand, I think his approach is you guys are all overthinking this. It isn't that hard. It's not harder than sending spaceships up into space and having them come down and you can reuse them or making electric cars from scratch. It really is just Twitter. I I can handle this. Is there a positive version of the chaos where you go, you know what? We've been treating this thing like a temple and it's not and it's a messy social network and it's the worst case scenario is he makes some bad decisions. You can it's Twitter. You can you can roll them back. What's the big deal? There's there's a positive case to it, I think, um, from a very logistical power user perspective, which is that, you know, there are certain things that if you are, you know, <laughs> clinically addicted to the service, uh, you notice, right? Like, ah, oh, the, you know, DMs are still, they're now searchable, but they're kind of in disarray and it could be so much more useful, right? So you could see someone who uses these products a lot say, okay, well, you know, here's here's one very small thing, right? Or I should be able to discover new people this way because this is the way I discover new people. 
and I don't know how Elon Musk uses Twitter to be very honest with you, but I could imagine that there is a world in which there are a few relatively easy product tweaks that mm -hmm. he could make early on that would, you know, increase again for that subsection of people who are really extremely online. It would be, it would be nice. I, I can imagine that. Now, I think where, you know, he's getting into probably a heap of trouble is this idea that like sending people to space is one order of magnitude. This is, you know, 280 characters. This is easy. Like ask anyone who is an expert in content moderation or first amendment law or, you know, uh, issues of speech in general. And you will see that like, there's really nothing more messy than the human nature of, you know, democratizing speech while preserving healthy conversations. It's like a fundamental issue of humanity and being alive. And it's a tough tightrope to walk. And in some ways they're like sending, you know, getting a rocket to specifications is kind of like, there's a lot of, you know, binary decisions, right? It's a lot of like, if you set, if you put these pieces in place, the thing does what it's supposed to do. It's, I'm not underselling like the feats mm -hmm. of engineering and, and genius required to do that, but it's not dealing, you know, each, each part in a rocket isn't its own complex human being who's maybe just going to, you know, veer off in some unexpected way. But just to push back, because this is half a devil's advocate position, but I, I do see the merit to it. And I get this from the way Elon Musk talks about this, but also people like Mark Andreessen, who say, like, they're suggesting, like, look, all of the sort of experts about this stuff, you're just self-appointed experts, or you work at colleges, and so you're academics, and you're just up your own butts about this stuff, and it shouldn't be hard, and more speech is better, and you just can't do anything illegal, basically. And the, if there's lots of bad speech, you know... That's fine. We, we, we can live with that. And by the way, this version of, of thinking about free speech was pretty mainstream for several decades in, in America up until maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, max. Um, and now it's changed. And I think people and, and by the way, it's is this is a argument that if you ask a regular person on the street, they'd say, yeah, that makes total sense to me. Mm -hmm. And we can stop being so delicate about this. We can we can blunder through. And if someone's this is the way Musk's putting it, right? If you're offended, what's the big deal? Mm -hmm. You can live with that. Um, this isn't as complicated as Charlie Warzel is trying to make it. Yeah, I mean, I would I would direct those people to spend time looking into the history of and or the experience of like any community or gathering of human beings or platforms, and like also into into sort of analog human nature. Like there are norms and that you know govern the way that we interact with each other in very particular spaces right like there are just ways in which you know we're allowed and not allowed to you know talk to each other or we're asked to be removed from that space you know like a bouncer will throw you out of a bar for a certain mm -hmm. type of conduct and it's not you know related to you know the freedom of speech it's that you can't be in our establishment if you don't abide by these rules etc like if you look at you know online communities basically since the dawn of the internet like the ones that have no type of moderation whatsoever are just like they're not communities that people want to spend time in that's sort of like the first and foremost because they're they're loud they're obnoxious usually the loudest most obnoxious people win and and i you know i'm i know that um over like someone like Elon Musk, you know, has talked a lot about Reddit and, uh, you know, has sort of had an affinity for that, the, the culture that's come out of there. And 
I mean, Reddit is a community that is run by, you know, volunteer moderators in every single subreddit. And that is actually what I think has made it a relatively resilient platform that's actually weathered a lot of these abuse and speech issues. And used to be said. known as one of the more toxic places on the internet, and they figured out a way to solve it. Yeah, that. and they've really found a way to do that. And I think when you go and you look, and this is also part of, um, you know, the last, I would say, six or so years of, of my career as a technology journalist, when you go to these free-for-all unmoderated places, I mean, a lot of the people who are there are only there because there's no other place for them to go, but their experience there is not great. The experience of going there isn't great. Um, and, and I would say too, you know, when you look at some of these platforms, there are sort of two ways that they go about. One, they turn into actual cesspools, like very truly the worst inhabitable places that, you know, where where these, you know, say neo-Nazis, right, they don't actually get a chance to interact with anyone else. They don't get to, you know, do the trolling that they want to do because no one's going to go to those spaces. Mm-hmm. Part of the appeal of a place like Twitter is that everyone's there. So your enemies Right, you there. can't troll the libs if the libs aren't there. If they're not there, yeah. And then the other part of that is that a place like you know, parlor or whatever, they start out with these, you know, lofty ideals, and then they see what kind of a cesspool there is, right? Or they say, oh, wow, this is flooding with child porn. Well, we don't want child porn. We don't want any rules on your on your speech, but we definitely don't want child porn and, and spam. Mm-hmm. So we're going to actually moderate that away. And that's just the history of, of, of everything. And that's why I think, you know, the academics that the, you know, your devil's advocate argument or like, you know, the, the, the Mark Andreessen style thing, I, I mean, there's a way in which some of those conversations can sound tedious and can sound a little bit like I'm an expert, you're not. But really, I mean, they're based off of a a study of a lot of these spaces. And I think if you look at the history of, of, of all kinds of communities, both analog and digital, you see that like they don't exist and last and thrive without some kind of moderation. And that can take a lot of forms. It's totally reasonable for someone to say, yes, Mark Andreessen, and I realize that you basically built the internet or the on-ramp to the internet, but I've been studying how that works for X number of years, and that's my full-time job. So it's actually, it's okay for me to talk, even though you built the thing. I want to come back to, to, to sort of the politics that underlies all this, but let's, let's finish up the, the last timeline, which is where I think you think it's most likely to happen here. The, la- the most likely result, which granted is a guess, was, is what? You call it the recent past is future timeline. Yeah. And so that's the one where it's, it's not, it's kind of like a hybrid of the first two to some degree, right? Mm-hmm. It's, I, cause I imagine there will be certain things in there that, that people will view as a, not the worst case scenario, but a bad case scenario that is, you know, I, I think what's really plausible is that Elon Musk doesn't necessarily invite Donald Trump back on like right away or anything like that. I think what he does is he, my, if I had to just totally, you know, blindly guess, it would be something like anyone who's had their account banned can petition mm-hmm. to get back in and we yep. have new rules that will be more permissible. So give it a whirl, right? Sort of asking people to come to him instead of giving the, you know, the rubber stamp. Um, but anyhow, so it's it's this version where he does some of those things um, that people will find relatively odious or, or bad but also that he runs into so many of these things, these struggles that we've, you know, found out before, uh, or that we talked about before, and 
gets a little bit disinterested. He's got a lot of irons in the fire. He clearly likes, you know, the attentional aspect of of this. He likes being the figurehead of Twitter. Um, but maybe he doesn't exactly want to deal with all the annoyance and, you know, like it's a terrible job to be the, you know, the head of Twitter because everyone is always mad at you all the time. And that means everyone like it, it's not one of those things where it's like your delight. There's a delight in trolling people. It's that like everyone's mad at you for some reason. So in that timeline, he I think, you know, he he maybe does a lot of uh, personnel changes. A lot of people leave Twitter because they're frustrated employees um, leave Twitter. Maybe they roll back some of the terms of service to make it more permissible. And and my guess is that Twitter starts to look like like it did sort of in the I, I use 2016 as as the year. Um, and, and I use 2016 because that's kind of the year where things, you know, post-election start to change, that the sort of more permissible free speech maximalist idea of the Twitter founders starts to get, you know, written as a naive view of of the platform and and the way to do it and and more and more of the you know moderation tools for users and and terms of service changes start to get um you know put into place so my guess is that you know twitter's future looks like its recent past it changes it but not so it's unrecognizable he plays around with it but it's still the same business and social network that 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 we've been using for the last 10 years or so yeah um and and then moves on to something else and one thing i keep harping on is by the way he's the world's richest man but he does have to run this as a business it's not he can't just shut it down and say it's all going on to the blockchain and we're done with ads and it's all free um money has to keep coming in he needs to pay back debt um, a lot of this is financed based on Tesla shares, which are very precarious. Um, it does have to continue operating as a business. And right now that means advertisers. And if he's going to change that, that's a wrenching change too. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, that, that would be, it would be a huge change. And I, and I think that that's a really good way to think about it. That like, I, I don't think he's trying to like, you know, on day one say like, oh, we're pulling the cord. You know, I actually didn't want Twitter around. Like he doesn't have that money to blow. Um, and, and, you know, I think when we when we talk about when the people who are really worried about, you know, Twitter unraveling under him and becoming a true cesspool, the reason why I use like 2016 as as sort of that that focal point is there was a lot more really egregious like we're talking like people with, you know, Hitler avatars tweeting, mm-hmm. you know, photoshopped images of people in gas chambers around. It was it was much more of a wild west in terms of that really, really awful, awful, egregious stuff. And yet we were all still on it, right? There were still, quote unquote, good tweets. There were still, you know, like politics was still happening on it. And it's many, it's many not- of us were. That was also the time when there were high profile. I'm quitting Twitter because of this abuse. There was a whole series of stories, usually from women. Absolutely. Sometimes women of color saying this is untenable. You guys don't know how bad it is. And by the Absolutely. way, straight white guys, Charlie and Peter, like you don't know how bad this is. Yes, no, 100%. And and that's so that's sort of what I think, you know, a a plausible you know, comp is for what we could see if there is that sort of we're going to roll back some of these things, you know, it's going to be a lot more permissive of, you know, uh rule violations, etc. Um and that's not a great place for a lot of people as you, as you as you point out. I want to move on to, to two other things before I let you go. 
one is this idea that that Musk puts out as his motivation for buying is he wants to protect free speech. And with that and other tweets you've seen, the, the assert, basically his assertion is Twitter is is preventing people from saying what they want to say. That's he's de- denying their free speech rights. Granted, let's leave aside the fact that it's not a government-run organization. Um, I want to fix that. That is the kind of argument that Twitter is censoring voices that you would hear from Republicans, conservatives who were either cynical or literally didn't know what they were talking about. But it was really just to score points with voters. It wasn't wasn't something they really cared about. Elon Musk is smart. Um, he certainly may not ha- uh, be deeply enmeshed in, in social network um, theory, but he has some idea of how this stuff works. And on top of that, smart people, again, like Mark Andreessen and other, other people who've grown up with the internet who has, know how this stuff works, they are making the same argument as well, that Twitter and, and tech in general has been swamped by wokeness um, and that it is, it, is, it is a real problem, like a significant problem for humanity. I think of it as like that meme jumping from, you know, the Donald Trump wing of the Republican Party into Mark Andreessen's head. And I, I don't think that's right. But what do you make of that argument from people who either should know better or do know better? I think that it is a very convenient posture that's been adopted by, in an interesting way, or let me put it this way. I, I think that it's a a reaction to the very free speech that they're worried about. I think a big change in just being alive in the world over the course of like the advent of the social web, right? Like not just web 1.0, but this web 2.0 is the fact that there are so many different voices out there, right? And that so many different people who have had the ability to say what they want to say, to be seen as experts, right? Let's take an Andreessen, right? Hey, helped give us, you know, the again, as you put it, the on-ramp to the internet. Massive contribution to a lot of this stuff, right? Has been always sort of taken as, you know, an expert in a very serious voice that, you know, should command a great deal of respect. Well, there's the very loud factions of people who aren't, you know, necessarily completely politically opposed to him who can now criticize him and say, actually, we think you're full of shit. Um, We think even because you built this thing, you don't understand how it works per se. And the same can be said for Musk, same can be said for a lot of people. And there, you know, I think part of that of the quote unquote tech lash that we've seen over the years is a lot of animosity directed towards these people. Mm -hmm. A lot of media coverage they believe to be, you know, um, not just unfair, but like unfairly motivated towards, you know, like tearing them down. And, and they'll say it's not tearing them down. It's about stopping progress. Right. That you're yes. anti-technology. No. You're trying to prevent the future. Totally. And and I do think there's this real, you know, um, two sides, right, that are fighting. It's mostly framed by these, like, builder types uh, mm-hmm. who believe that, you know, that, that building, that innovating is, you know, sort of a universal good, right? That, like, it doesn't really matter what happens as long as you keep taking shots, that is what's actually important. That's what drives change and progress in the world versus this group of like, I think where we can fall into uh, in the media as critics, right? And the critics mm-hmm. tear down. The critics are sort of vampiric in nature. Uh, they they don't really contribute a lot. Um, they In fact, they don't contribute anything. They wait until uh, we do something and then they attack it on all of its merits. And I, I think that that is a 
real worldview that a lot of uh, people who are building things have. But anyhow, I, I think that this, you know, democratization of speech creates a lot of conflict. And some of it is, is good and some of it is bad and some of it is harassment, some of it's, you know, good faith criticism. And I think that this, you know, kind of being besieged by it when you're used to being treated a certain way, when you feel you're deserving of a different type of respect and standing in society can, you know, really change you. I think it can kind of drive you a little bit mad to some degree. I remember seeing Andreessen speak at what was I think then called the Code Conference, uh, and it was after the Trump election, and it was him and Reed Hoffman from Greylock, and they were supposed to hold forth about the future. But you could tell uh, Andreessen was really angry, and he was really laying into liberals who didn't understand why people had voted for Trump and what it was like to grow up in bumfuck Wisconsin. And, and, and he was angry. Uh, and I was really struck by it. And, and the tone of his tweet still strikes me. I mean, he's one of the most powerful people in history. Uh, and he seems to be very angry. Uh, but, but if we take their feelings out of it for a second, one argument that I, I am interested in is saying, look, the thing about moderating speech and, and deferring to experts is that you're going to get stuff wrong all the time. Let's point to, then they point to every mistake made during the pandemic. There's a gazillion of them. They're still mm -hmm. ongoing. Yeah, you, it used to be the lab leak theory was a crazy person theory. And now it's something that regular people talk about. And there's a debate. And why should we shut this down? And yes, it turns out ivermectin doesn't do you any good. But why should we have uh, why should we have thrown people off Twitter for promoting ivermectin? Um, if it turns out it doesn't do any good, we'll find out and and let's have more of that. And if we're going to have mistakes, let's make the mistakes um, instead of shutting people off from knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and the, you know, like the, I think probably what Hunter Biden's laptop is like the is is is, is the big one, and and you know, an overreach of of a social network to you know censor censor a link that was probably not correct um it probably was an overreach uh i mean the again this stuff is complicated right like like i when you're dealing with people who are um who are smart like like you mentioned like all these people are like intelligent human beings like obviously there 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 are concerns that they have that that are warranted at times um but I really feel, I really do feel like it is, it is in, in a lot of ways a reaction to the type of speech. Like once you become, I noticed this at, at the New York Times, right? Um, when I was working there, your workplace ends up being in the news a lot, right? And you see mm -hmm. reports of things in the mainstream media. And sometimes you're like, you know what? That report didn't quite get it right, right? Like it's mm -hmm. not actually similar to my lived experience. I think there's two ways you can go about that. You can say, we are all humans. We're trying to do our jobs. Sometimes you get things right. Sometimes things get simplified or generalized or put into, you know, black and white categories because, you know, that's the best way in our attention ecosystem to, you know, to drive that. And you can have a reaction to it that is, you know, sort of measured, or you can take it as an example that, you know, something is not only broken, but corrupt. And that, you know, that it is a, you know, pernicious factor on our society. I mean, I thought it was really interesting when I was doing some of the like post 2016 Facebook reporting, speaking to people inside, I was talking with, this is, I think, like early 2017, I was talking with like, a, a very high up executive at Facebook, and they started using the like, 
Trumpian like fake news like thing to describe media organizations. And I was like, whoa. And they said, well, they would keep, they'd point to these things and say, well, this story got, you know, these two little facts wrong and no one has resigned. And therefore like, you know, this whole institution is corrupt. And I think that there's a good bit of that happening. Um, and, you know, I think it probably also happens on the other end where we assign, you know, total malice to decisions that are, you know, like boring product decisions um, that, you know. Yeah. Or where we want to assign Twitter or Facebook the blame for electing Donald Trump. Yeah. Right. But I, I would say fundamentally, this is a problem of the democratization of speech, right? That there's more voices, there's more criticism, there's more, you know, like good faith stuff, more bad faith stuff. There's just more. And there are ways in which people can react to that. And you can have a measured reaction to it, or you can sort of, you know, it can, as we've seen, sort of like red pill people, you know, and they start to become sort of um, really disillusioned with certain institutions. And if you have the money, if you have the power, there's this kind of desire to, I think, want to tear them down. And I feel that you know, there's a number of really influential people in Silicon Valley who have, who really feel like the, you know, the, the media has its, has sort of gotten to a place where it is no longer a useful, productive, or, you know, good force in, in our democracy. And they want to, you know, tear it down. One way to tear it down is to, you know, continue to expand the permissiveness of all these types of voices to make the system, you know, more chaotic and, and, you know, I, I, I just think that's where some of these people are, are trending. And I think it's unfortunate. Speaking of power and billionaires in Silicon Valley, we'll leave it here. But I just trying to get my head around, I think a lot of people are, what it means to have the world's richest person. First of all, it has that much money, period. And then has the capacity and the ability to buy Twitter, something that we probably overemphasize the importance of, but is still very important. And essentially, short of the banks not giving him money, there's nothing to prevent him from doing that. And I don't even know if there's a question here, but I'm wondering if you're rolling that around in your head and thinking, yeah, this was inevitable. Of course, we get to this point. We'll see more of it. Or this is a one-off because it has to do with Tesla and meme stocks. And we're not going to be in a place like this again. And Twitter, by the way, doesn't have a dual class structure, so it couldn't protect itself from a takeover. And this is anomaly or, or yeah, well, get ready. We're going to have more stuff bought by the world's richest people. I'm definitely thinking about it. There's no way I think I would have predicted it just because it's pretty specific. I mean, I, I guess one one could have. I mean, I think that there's a bunch of things at play here, right? One thing that is, you know, kind of grimly, ironically hilarious to me is this idea that, like, man talks about the virtues of this, like, great public square marketplace yeah. for ideas. And it's like, and I'm going to buy that. it and take it private. Uh, I'm going to own it. And it's we're going to make the, you know, the digital commons. Um, you Mine. Know, mine so i think that there's something you know kind of interesting about that that's a little on the nose it's it's i think it's just generally concerning that you know that the way that i i kind of looked at the musk news before it was actually like totally plausible before we knew it was actually going to happen was that it kind of reminded me a little bit of just like you know, how certain people are like buying and doing meme stocks on Robinhood, right? Like this, this kind of like fun, chaotic retail investing um, that, you know, like 
teens are doing in high school and stuff like that. Yeah. And it's like, it's like the billionaire version of that, right? Like, cause, and then you saw a bunch of people, you know, sort of on Twitter reacting to it and being like, oh no, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll take one Twitter, please. Like, you know, I'll, I can pay, you know, 20 cents more a share. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's do it. Um, and, and I just think that there's this like kind of chaotic quality to it. And I have this, I wrote this thing last summer that, and it's this idea that I've just like been rolling around in my head a lot and it doesn't really have any real like conclusion or anything, but this idea that like absurdity is often, it feels like the point of a lot of things lately in, in politics, in finance, in technology, this idea of like, of like dragging like ridiculousness or online in jokes or, you know, memes or whatever shit posts, like dragging them into sort of the august halls of Congress or like making wall street traders deal with like what, you know, mm-hmm. like whatever, like, you know, gremlin 420 on Reddit, you know, uh, is saying like making some, trader care about that or feeding you know wall street bets into a bloomberg terminal like any of those types of things i feel like there's this it has this real like populist element to it but also this kind of nihilistic element of like maybe the maybe the planet's dying maybe or you know maybe the you know maybe a pandemic's gonna wipe us all out all these like this is why, why I'm still just... confused about the the insurrection, because on the one hand, people really wanted to go there and cause violence and stop the election. But a lot of dudes just wanted to run around uh, wearing funny hats in, right, in the right. capital. And, and, and those things and were surprised so... to find out that they couldn't do that. And yeah, and those things are so intertwined, right? There's like, it's very difficult to separate the people who are just kind of like, like, physically shit posting in reality versus the people who are like, you know, violently overthrowing. And also the conversation of like, should that matter, right? If you're there, like, does it matter what your intentions are if you, the end result is super chaotic? And I just think this is like a fundamental thing about being alive right now. And what Musk, what makes Musk so interesting is he is sort of like, if you gave Reddit bro, you know, uh, like anonymous mm-hmm. Reddit bro, if you gave him the all the money in the world, like what would that person do? And it's just, it's just a really interesting, chaotic. It's a, it's a great movie. Yeah. I I prefer to watch the movie than to live the reality though. Um, yes. But that's, yes, this yes. is where we are. Charlie Wurzel from The Atlantic uh, and the Great Galaxy Brain Newsletter. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Charlie. In a minute, we're going to hear from Lucas Shaw about Netflix. But first, a word from a sponsor. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit Mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for this show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for businesses to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, 
and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers, organized by skill and experience. Streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard, where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you. Project partners will outline requirements, assemble a roster of freelancers, and manage a schedule to ensure your deliverables are completed on time. Ready to scale smarter? Visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code VOX for 15% off any service. That's pro.fiverr.com and use code VOX. I'm here with Lucas Shaw, who I usually describe as great guy, awesome reporter, guy I always want to hear talk about Netflix and everything else. But I just learned your official title, Lucas. It's Leader of Entertainment, it says here. Is that right my official email. title? My official yeah. title is actually Team Leader for Media, Entertainment, and Telecom. Where are you getting that other thing? Leader, leader of Entertainment, Media, and Telecom Team, comma, Bloomberg. But Leader of Entertainment is, the, is what we're going with, and it's right sure. there in your email, so... That's that's the rules. Um, as leader of entertainment, you've had a busy week because there's been some news. Let's focus on Netflix specifically. We have known for a long time that Netflix was going to reach the end of its growth trajectory in the U.S. They've been clear about that, and they were going to have to grow internationally. Netflix also misses some of their projections from time to time. But what happened last week was, was very unique. Um, they lost... 200,000 subscribers uh, missing their projections by 2 million plus and said, we're going to lose 2 million more the next quarter. So it's not, this is a slowing growth stock. This is a, this is a growth company and it's now going backwards. It's the worst, worst loss they've had in, in 10 years when they did a, a self-inflicted quickster mistake. What, what happened this time, Lucas? They identified four factors, uh, two of which are more kind of macroeconomic um, you have inflation, which is hurting them in certain parts of the world. You have the the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which cost them, uh, you know, about seven hundred thousand subscribers. So if you which they already back, said that's coming, right? But if you put that back in, you know, that means that they they still did gain subscribers in this most recent quarter, just a very small amount for them. The the two million part then is the like the really shocking thing because even if you take U Ukraine out, they're shrinking. The the two more immediate factors that relate specifically to to Netflix, uh, they identified as password sharing and competition. The competition one feels more relevant, I think, probably both to you and to me, because password sharing has been around for a very long time. And it, it felt a little bit like they just tossed that out as something that they're going to work on this time. It's also they something they, they used to encourage in their, yeah. in their old days. And something that they needed, they you know, now that their growth has slowed, they need to address. Mm -hmm. um, and they've they've tinkered with ways to address it in the past, and 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 found it pretty challenging. So it remains to be seen if they'll have any more success now. So they blamed password sharing. Uh, they also said that yes, there's they had a whole list of things. Uh, you know, we forecasted wrong about COVID, but I think you and I were both struck by the fact that this seems to be competition, which they said for a long time. We know it's coming. We're 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 ready for it. We we you know of course we we encourage more competition, etc. What what did they miscalculate here, or was this always going to happen, and it just happened really suddenly instead of gradually? I think they. They, they struggle to adjust to the competitive dynamic, you know, because they, 
They were at first dismissive that competition would have an impact, right? Because what they saw happening from a purely from a macro perspective was you have this big group of people watching cable TV and linear and broadcast, and they're going to shift over to the internet. And sure, now they have more competition on the internet, but because they're in, on kind of the right side of the trend, mm -hmm. they're going to continue to benefit from that trend. But it was sort of evident that once you hit kind of 18 months, two years after more of these services were in the market and you had a lot of them fighting for time, that not everything would be able to grow and certainly not grow at the same rate. But Netflix didn't change a lot about how it was operating or how it was putting out its shows. And by that, I mean, I mean I'm sure that they would argue, well, we're making lots of different types of new programming and we're continuing to you know level up and movies and unscripted international and all of that is true. But when you're thinking about competition, you know, you have to make customers want to watch your service and watch your shows. And they have struggled in, in the especially in the past couple of years to make their shows stand out mm -hmm. or prolong, I would say. They've, they have a lot of shows that become hits, but they come and go really quickly. And as you then as other people have shows that are competing for the same attention, I just think they struggle to hold on to people's wallet. I had settled into this idea that, you know, I love a lot of the stuff that's coming out on HBO Max, Apple TV. It's all good for me. And using myself as a proxy for a Netflix subscriber, which I know is dangerous. It was was there stuff I always wanted to see on Netflix? No, but Netflix has a ton of stuff. And so we inevitably turn to it in the same way that you turn to regular TV in the old days, which is very much their intent, right? We're just going to have a lot of stuff. And you didn't really think you wanted to watch The Closer on TNT, but here it is. And look, you're watching it. And it turns out it's a popular show because we can show it on a lot of screens. And it seemed like that was where they had settled into. And whenever people, including yourself, would cite data from like Parrot Analytics showing that they no longer had the most sought after shows um, compared to, you know, the competitors at, at Paramount or HBO or wherever. It didn't strike me that people were going to leave Netflix. They were just going to maybe add one other network. So what's the flaw in my thinking? Are people more price sensitive than I imagined? Or is Netflix really that much more uninteresting than it used to be? No, I mean, I I think your point is valid. I felt the same way. It's like Netflix is sort of like Kleenex in that you're just always going to have it around. I mean, Kleenex is a bad example because it's it's kind of a de facto monopoly, but it's one of those things that you're always going to have around. You might watch other programs more or other services more, but why would you cancel it? And I and I'm also very wary of drawing grand conclusions from personal anecdotes because I like you find myself you know I, I probably watch more HBO than I watch Netflix and then I I do sample some of these other services there's not a ton of programs on Netflix so far this year that I've been watching other people are, are pretty different you know I don't know a lot of people who watched CBS at it you know yep. back in the day either or or even now and a lot of people do but they're there the issue for them is not I think that people have have abandoned Netflix it's that they're not growing mm -hmm. anymore and they needed ways to keep growing. And they seem to have reached, a, you, you mentioned them reaching a limit in the U.S., which they, had, they have been slowing down in the U.S. for a while. I think they probably hit a bit of a ceiling in terms of pricing. I'd be curious to see what their, their executives say about it. But, you know, Netflix is now, the, along with HBO, the most expensive of any of the streaming services. And if people aren't loving what they're getting, can they keep raising the international one is probably the most surprising where, you know, they, they shrank in Latin America, they shrank in Europe and Middle East. Again, Ukraine was a factor, but they'd been growing a lot faster. And it's a bit harder for me to diagnose 
why the growth all of a sudden slowed or stopped there. Yes, we've had the introduction of, of new services and Disney's now widely available in a lot of these places and HBO Max and, and Paramount Plus are too. My sense is that they're all pretty tiny. In, in other, Disney in Europe is probably mm -hmm. pretty big, but the other ones are small in most of these other markets. So it's, it's hard to know what exactly they ran into. To me, the most striking thing wasn't their numbers, wasn't in their letter. It was a comment Reed Hastings made during the earnings call. He doesn't freelance on these calls. Well, sometimes he does a little bit, but this is clearly something he had planned to say. Reed Hastings, who for years had said Netflix does not want advertising, and not only that, held up the fact that it was ad-free as a, as a real plus. Um, and for years, Netflix has spent years talking about how not having ads allows them to create different kinds of content. Said, yeah, we're, we're going to probably do ads in, in a couple years. He didn't fully commit to doing it, but he's basically saying, yeah, we're going to do ads. And to me, that's that's the record scratch moment, even more than losing the subs, because they could say, that's ah, a blip. But them saying we're fundamentally changing a core precept about this company really strikes me. Yeah, the, the advertising and the password sharing at the same time and the way it was delivered, it felt like they were they, they felt the pressure. Mm -hmm. Netflix has always sort of anticipated what was coming and felt ready for it and felt confident. And there was something about the way both the way that they presented these changes and the fact that they did them at all that felt very reactive. It felt defensive and it felt like they weren't really sure either what was wrong or what they should be doing. And I that that I, I agree with you that that to me was the most jarring part of the whole day, because if and, and if I'm an, a Netflix employee and I've spoken with many of them over the last kind of last few days, I think to them, they also felt a little bit concerned about where the company was going since, you know, they'd been led to believe that that things were fine. And any time Netflix had had one of these bad quarters, they had always dismissed it as a blip. And it was clear that company leadership felt very differently this time. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about the employees in a minute, but first on the ad side itself, um, they haven't fully committed to doing this, but again, for Reed Hastings to come out and say this, it's meaningful. It doesn't sound like a fully baked uh, plan, but it also sounds like the plan as it's structured is we're going to bring in some third party service and have them sell ads. And then I guess we'll just cut them into Netflix programming and you'll still have an ad free tier of Netflix, but we'll have a cheaper one for people who want ads. Um, what do you think of that plan, such as it is? Can I ask you a, a, a question first? Yeah. I'm curious, you mentioned earlier that that Reed Hastings doesn't freelance on earnings. Do you think that his comments on advertising were all pre-planned? Yes. Interesting, okay. I think he pretty much said, I'm gonna, I'm, I mean, yes, is what I think is the short answer. Pre-planned -pre as in he decided to do it or pre-planned as in their, in their pre-earnings chat with him and, and, and the kind of senior team that they knew that he was basically going to go forth and say that this was happening? I think the latter. I don't think he stepped out in front of his team and, and shocked them. He may not have given them a ton of heads up about it. <laughs> um, but uh, I, do, I mean, it's weird that it was in the call and not the letter. That's really striking if you know Netflix. Because uh, that letter usually, un unlike most companies, um, the press release has a ton of information in it. Pretty much all you need, frankly. Yeah, the um, call's usually pretty uneventful yeah. other than what sweater Reed is wearing. So yeah, so so what do you think of this ad program? Is there a way that it works for them? Sure. I mean, they have a massive audience, 221 mm -hmm. million customers. They Those people come to watch 
premium television, um, most of which is very advertising friendly. I mean, yes, Netflix has some some documentaries that go into political mm -hmm. area, political areas that advertisers might want to avoid, but um, and and certainly some kind of grittier dramas and some sex and violence and all of that. But for the most part, it's the most. I mean, it's other than YouTube, it's the most popular TV network in the world. It's available everywhere. It by and large has a probably wealthier. Uh, clientele or user base than the average person. And so there's a huge opportunity for advertisers who've been nervous about this kind of shift to streaming, ripping out the or kind of wrecking the TV ad market. The The real question is in the mechanics and the how and, and how much data is Netflix going to share because they've always been very protective over that. And, and how much if they're going to use a third party intermediary, does that mean Netflix is going to give it to them? Who's then going to give it to the advertisers? They've also insisted they don't collect demographic data on you, that they obviously know who signed up for the account. They know what the IP address is. But I was surprised, frankly, when I was doing this Netflix podcast a couple of years ago, I assumed they had tons of data about me personally. I said, no, 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 we only know about what it is that you watch. And obviously we right. can draw a lot of inferences, but we're not Facebook. We don't have all this data on you. Yeah, I purely meant viewership data, not yes. even you know, it, because because they've also been very protective over that. But you're right; their their attitude or mo approach seems to be our audience is so big and so like lucrative for these potential advertisers that it will be awareness advertising. You will go there much as the reason you know people don't add advertise in the Super Bowl because they think that they're going to reach you know moms between like forty and forty nine who need. Uh, mm -hmm. paper towels people advertise in the super bowl because they want to reach everyone mm -hmm. and and that seems to be how netflix at least in the, these very early stages uh, is approaching ads you know when you uh, clearly pe some people will tolerate lots of advertising and and i know that's a fast-growing segment ad ad supported streaming whenever i dip into either the premium versions of that meaning like hulu with ads or the the less premium version the the two b's and and pluto and i'm sure they'll be offended if i call them less premium but it's it's not an elegant experience, right? If uh, uh, the best case scenario is you're seeing a lot of repetitive advertising, which it's just awful. makes me think well, I what? have the ad supported Hulu, and yeah. I, I always want to upgrade, and I just haven't done it. But I'm, I'm also thinking, getting, like, how yeah. can this be good for the advertisers if they see this, if they know that they're doing this repetition over and over again? And then when you get into the the lower tier of the stuff, it just looks like someone came by and spackled some ads into the programming that it it cuts in in a weird way. If you're watching it, it, it it's, it's just, if you haven't tried this, try it. You'll, you'll get a, it makes YouTube advertising look really slick. Do we assume Netflix is going to do something so they don't have that experience for their customers? Or they just figure there's Netflix premium for people who want to pay full price and then everyone else can handle a less premium version of Netflix? As a, as a consumer, I would hope that they come up with a better experience and for a company that has always been so focused, you know, their whole explanation for why they still do binge viewing, even though everybody else seems to tell them that they should change it up, is that their customers prefer it. Um, and so it, it, but but a lot of that's based on data, and they don't have any data in terms of advertising, um, and they don't have a lot of people who are are working at the company who come from advertising. I mean, they have some certainly, but it, it's not a core competency of the company. Um, and so I, I suspect a lot of this has yet to be worked out. You know, Reed Hastings would say, well, I've, you know, I've served on the board of Facebook or I, I served on the board of Facebook for a long time. So I know a lot about it, this market and we employ a lot of people who came from advertising either on our marketing teams or they do do a little bit of product placement, that sort of thing. Uh, but this is a whole new business for them. I would, I would 
hope that they approach it with the same desire to innovate as they did with certain you know, traditional TV. Um, but if they're under a lot of pressure to do it quickly, they, they, they may not have that liberty. So quickly is still a year plus, maybe two years, I think is the timeline he gave us, right? Yeah. They so, will they will in, they will institute some of the password sharing stuff before they do the advertising mm-hmm. as best I can tell. But I think you and I are aligned in what they really need to do is get better programming or you know de- 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 you can, we can debate or present about it in a different way like why are they they don't one of the things that I'm always mystified they don't do marketing. Like they do a vi- or they do a very small amount. It's always been part of their shtick is you know they market the brand and they get you into the service mm-hmm. and then the algorithm d- tells you what to watch. And that works great when you think that most people are coming to you as their default. But suddenly when you have to compete for their attention, you need to have them want to come for specific shows. And they don't spend on marketing shows and movies like these other services. They do. market the brand. Yeah. Um, or they and they do kind of they do the more efficient online social advertising for some of these shows and they get a ton of what's called organic media where people mm-hmm. are just writing about what they're yep. doing. But the the campaign that lets me know that whatever movie is coming to Disney Plus or whatever show is coming to Hulu, they have always avoided doing it. It's very tricky for them because they are op- or producing at such a scale that if they tried to invest in marketing for each of those titles, they'd be spending way too much. But they could certainly pick winners and say, we're going to do a big campaign behind this title and make sure people watch it. And their argument has been, we're Netflix. We program our own homepage. We can put whatever we want there and we can show you all this great stuff once you're there. But if they're at a point where they need to bring more people in, maybe they do that. Is there anything on the programming front where you think they need a rethink, whether it's, you know, you and I have talked before about their movie stuff has been pretty lackluster, even though they do get close to Academy Awards every year but in general a netflix movie is not a badge of honor you know anyone listening to this will have their own critiques of programming they did boot their old programming head cindy holland out a couple years ago brought in someone um from nbc universal more traditional tv they promoted ted sarandos who runs content to co-ceo is there a point where they go hey our content strategy isn't working and we need to rethink and maybe we need new people the answer to that last question is yes Netflix, as you're well aware, is a company where you know they they don't they don't judge you based on past performance. They judge you based on what's happening right now. And if there's a feeling that the programming is not good enough, that then whether it's Ted Sarando, Scott Stuber, Bella Bajaria, the kind of the three most senior people or people who work for them, I assume that that someone within that organization will be penalized for the company's recent performance and either get get fired. Or, or or leave by choice because they see that mm-hmm. they're they they see some other opportunity. Is there a version where Ted Sarandos gets gets the heave? He is, I think, the longest running person there, not named Reed Hastings. Um, longest tenured. I'm not touching that one. Okay, uh, it's <laughs> I'm glad I asked that. <laughs> uh, is it possible? Anything is possible at this company. I mean, it, you all you have to do is is uh, is read Reed Hastings' book. Um, or to look at the history. I mean, he he effectively, um, you know, oust is the wrong word, but his co-founder. Everyone replaced, leaves. Yeah, he replaced he replaced his co-founder as CEO because he felt that he was the right person for that job and had, um, you know, and and so there's no world. I don't think there's anyone at the company who, um, you know, who is who is safe. Yeah, better word, irreplaceable. The larger programming question. I find this so tr- interesting. So I, I I have heard people complain about the quality of programming on Netflix for a, a, a long time now, and I get why. 
on a personal level, I watch less of it than I used to. I feel like they, as they've tried to diversify what they do and appeal to a broader and broader audience, the risk you run when you do that is then you're appealing to you're appealing to the passions of fewer and fewer people because yep. broad shows generally are not ones that people feel as strongly about. And there is a certain school, especially of former Netflix employees, who feel that Netflix should have continued to just own certain niches and use that to amass this larger audience. At the same time, there's no denying that these sort of big, broad shows are also quite popular. You know, mm -hmm. Bridgerton is, Shonda Rhimes has probably perfected the uh, the task of making the broadly appealing and yet still critically beloved show. But those are those are very hard. So I, I hear people complain about the quality of shows on Netflix and then they love watching the trashy reality. And so to, to the question of, you know, what could they be doing more or differently or better? I think they will continue to make more of, of what people are watching and what people like, and they will be a little less preoccupied with the critics and the awards. And they want that, and they'll continue to fund that. Yeah. But if people are watching reality shows, they need to make more reality shows. If people are watching uh, you know, these big action movies that, that you may not think are very good, but people like them, they'll keep watching it. The question, I think, for the real question is, is not so much the quality, but the quantity, because they see something that works and they choose to make like eight more of it. And I think that dilutes their, the dilutes the quality or restricts their ability to kind of impose quality control. And so if instead of making eight, they made four, but they made sure that each four of those were excellent, they might benefit more from it. Not to get too spacey here, but like, how are you defining excellent and benefit and things like that? I mean, for years, they've just said it's just based on whether we have more subscribers. If we have more subscribers, it means we're doing a good job. And also, by the way, even though we like awards and nominations, we're making stuff that our, our viewers like. And so Peter, if you don't like, uh, what is the, what is the rock Dwayne, the rock Johnson's movie called oh, red, red notice. notice. It's our most popular movie ever. Thus it is the best. That one sticks with me a little bit. Just I'm like, okay, it's not for me, but beyond that, I don't know that anyone has ever talked about that movie after having seen it on Netflix. So maybe they enjoyed it or didn't turn it off, but it still seems like not the hit their numbers say it is. And it seems like there is, Maybe it's just something you can't quantify, except maybe then you see losing 2 million subscribers is something you can quantify. But it seems like there's something that they're not capturing or acknowledging. And I want to blame that on, you know, they're a Silicon Valley company with a data brain, but it's not rocket science. They, they could figure this stuff out. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the obvious metric has always been subscribers, as, as you note. But I do think that obscured or it, it obscures other less tangible ones, which is sort of or or quantifiable ones, which is like a cultural impact. And Netflix has at times over the years tried to push back on that by pointing out like they'd have some movie or TV show breakout and then look at the Instagram followings of the stars of it. I think they did that with Casa de Papel, Money Heist, uh, which is a huge show for them. They did that with some of their romantic comedies, like mm -hmm. to All the Boys I've Loved Before. And they go like, oh, Noah Centineo, he was, nobody knew who he was. And now he's got 25 Yeah, and by the followers. way, Mr. Twitter Critic, you're, you're not a teen girl on Instagram, so we really don't care what you say because we're programming for them in this case. Correct. But I, I, there is something to this idea that Netflix programs don't always last in culture as long because of because there's not the same marketing because they drop them all at once because there's so much i mean something i've been thinking about i guess is you know netflix programs almost like it's a user generated content service like a, a youtube or a tiktok where there's always got to be something new for you to watch and that's really easy to do when you're paying nothing for programming that other people upload 
But when you're expected to deliver something at least every week, like two or three things every week that people want to watch, and you're spending anywhere from a million to $150 million on that, that becomes a much harder ballgame because you're going to have a lot of misses. There was a great interview with uh, one of the Coen brothers about who who had made something for Netflix, which I like a lot. Which of course I can't remember. But it's like a it's a series of vignettes. It's a great movie. Buster Scruggs, Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Yeah. But he's being interviewed and he made a dismissive comment about Netflix. It was the quote was something very close to Netflix buys stuff by the yard. They just want more. It doesn't really matter what. They just want more of it. And that always struck with me. You mentioned the employees you've been talking to in Twitter. Within, within Twitter, you can see where my brain is. <laughs> within Netflix, it's the subject of your most recent newsletter. And basically, you say they're, they're all getting ready to leave. How much of that is financial? How much of that is cultural? I think it's a bit of both. I mean, I should, um, I should probably hedge on my own newsletter, which is I don't think you're going to see. Like Netflix has 11,000 plus employees. It's not like you're going to see 1,000 people leave tomorrow. But what struck me from conversations was just how kind of downtrodden or upset people were. Mm-hmm. You know, Netflix has, has always been a place that was a magnet for very ambitious people who wanted to work at this company that was changing Hollywood. Um, and though it can be a very challenging place to work, folks were usually willing to forgive it because they felt like they were at the center of everything. And, and getting paid a ton. And getting paid a ton of money. And there's just this kind of natural confidence that that developed over the years at Netflix that I feel like is shaken a bit. And now you have the, an issue where your, your stock is not worth very much and you're not sure if your company is going, is, is, you know, going to keep growing. And so there's going to be a mix of, you know, Netflix will restructure. And so there'll be some people that it pushes out. And then there may be some people who are ambitious and high performing who say, you know, this isn't the place for me to be anymore. And both on the engineering and the programming side where, you know, maybe they take a a chance on leaving for another company in a way that that they wouldn't have before. Do you get the sense that Netflix uh, management is aware slash concerned about that? I was talking with someone fairly high up earlier in the year when their stock had already been beaten up for a previous earnings problem. And I said, and, and I was comparing it to Facebook and I was saying, are you guys considering, you know, repricing options, making people whole? And that was before their stock had tumbled another 35%. And the answer was no, it's fine. Everyone's cool with it. Do you think they make some sort of concession to say, we really do want to keep a bunch of you in here. We're going to, we're going to make it up to you. For the time being, they're saying no, but I felt for a, uh, for a while that there's been a, a kind of a disconnect between the, the very top and the kind of the most of the staff at that company, just because the people at the top had made so much money and gotten so powerful and felt like everything was great. And there was a belief, you know, that's a company whose, whose culture is, is kind of famous, uh, within Silicon Valley, within Hollywood. Um, the leaders view that culture as very good. If you ask the rank and file employee, you might get a a different answer Mm -hmm. because it's been much harder to, to preserve that culture and make it feel like a positive thing. So changing would require real real self-awareness on the part of the of leadership and I think they'll probably find some because of the current state of things I'd like to believe that they'll be more responsive but I don't know. Netflix is down I think 2 thirds over the last uh, 6 to 9 months roughly. Do I have that math right? Take, yeah. Uh it's now worth I'm just looking up the market cap right now a mere 89 billion dollars. Oh, wow. Must be beneath 90. So-and-so should buy Netflix has been an ongoing media discussion forever. 
Um, and if, you know, now you're seeing people from, you know, back in the day at HBO say, oh, we wanted to buy Netflix when there's only a million people, et cetera. And for a long time, it, for recent history, it's been a non-starter because it was so expensive, pretty much no one could buy it. Do you think that there are people looking at buying Netflix in a serious way now? I'm sure that there are bankers who are preparing pitches or have already made pitches to large companies. And I'm sure that at, at a handful of large company, large tech companies, there's at least a discussion of it in a strategy meeting. I, I find it re- still pretty hard to see just because, you know, even at even as much as it shrunk, there are only so many companies that can afford to do it. Mm-hmm. I'd imagine most of them are pretty concerned about kind of antitrust scrutiny if they tried to do it. And so who does who does that leave? You know, is there a merger of of other entertainment companies? Does Netflix, you know, there, there's been a lot of speculation about or discussion of consolidation among the existing media companies. Does this yep. th- make that more likely? You know, it would have been easier to, you know, to, to flip that around. It would have been easier for Netflix to buy something when its stock was worth a lot. But also does, do these challenges make it more likely that that Netflix does something that it hasn't done before and go and buy one of these entertainment companies that's out there because it has a bunch of things that might help it as it tries to Right. And I strategy. would think that would also be a non-starter for antitrust reasons. Probably. Um, and I think that's how they viewed it, but maybe that they'll change their minds. Right. Or maybe they see that Amazon was able to buy MGM and they got away with it. And then they look around and they say, hey, there's this Paramount thing and they've got this lot that we've always wanted. And they've got Pluto TV, which is a big advertising supported service that we could in some way use. And they have a deep library and they have some strength in Latin America. And maybe it makes sense. I, I you know, I'm Sherry Redstone, pick up the phone. It's time to sell. Um but yeah, it, it may it, it it's at the moment I'd say probably all unlikely, but there's it, it's more possible now than it was a week ago. Notice how I haven't asked you the single dumbest question that's come up in the last week. Is, what does that? this mean for streaming? Is this the end of streaming? Streaming now it's it's not all cracked uh, up to be. Yeah. Or, also or CNN or Plus shut down. What what I, does that mean? CNN Plus, yes. Well, someone did ask me uh, Spotify reports earnings this week. Yes. And someone asked me if we would see a similar slowdown in in Spotify because of what's happening in streaming. Um, so that can... You, you know who's thinking about and... getting that question? Spotify. <laughs> I think they have an answer cooked up when we ask them tomorrow. Uh, Lucas Shaw, you're great. It's fun with having you on. You're at Bloomberg. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Lucas and to Charlie and Jelani and Travis for producing and editing the show and our sponsors for bringing the show to you for free and you guys for writing. You're writing to me a lot now and I'm going to be doing this column. I appreciate it. Um, there is a, I don't know if it's a bonus column, but it's an early column out on uh, Twitter this week. In case you haven't read it, you can get that for free as well at Vox.com. This is Recode Media, and I'm going to see you Thursday because I've got a really fun interview that I've taped um, a while ago. You're going to like it. Okay. See you soon. <laughs>